Amen again. Always enjoy hearing songs that remind us of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Amen. So we have uh, been in a series called DNA where we have been uh, systematically preaching through our uh, church's mission statement. Um, If you are not uh, familiar with it, it's on the screen. Uh, As a church, we exist to proclaim the gospel through worship and prayer. We exist to proclaim, well, I'm sorry, we, we exist to celebrate the gospel through worship and prayer. We want to proclaim the gospel uh, through preaching and discipleship, and we also want to live out the gospel uh, through fellowship and ministry. And this morning, we want to kind of conclude, not conclude, but continue by focusing on the word fellowship. Uh, we believe that fellowship is something uh, that takes place when believers come together. And this morning, we want to turn our attention to Acts chapter number 2. I'm going to read verses 37 through 47. Acts chapter number 2, verses 37 through 47. You can let me know you have it by saying amen. amen. The scripture declares, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Anyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and, and belongings and distributing of the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple and together breaking bread in their homes, they received uh, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Uh, Just for a few moments, I want to speak from the subject title, Hearing and Seeing a Sermon. Hearing and Seeing a Sermon. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. God, I ask that this sermon would give us the opportunity to be exposed to the truth. God, I thank you that any time we open up your word, you never miss an opportunity to speak to us. God, so we pray collectively and individually. God, remove every hindrance. God, remove every distraction. God, remove every uh, boundary, God, this morning that will keep us from hearing your word. And God, we pray specifically that we would not simply Be hearers of your word, but God, help us to take the next step, but to to be doers of your word also. It's in the strong name of Christ 
that we do give thanks and pray these things. Amen. Uh, it has been said uh, by the poet Edgar Guest, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but an example is always clear. The best of all preachers are the ones who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everyone needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you will let me see it done. I can catch your hand in action, but your tongue too fast may run. The lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may understand you and the high advice you give, but there is no misunderstanding how we act and how we live. When I see a deed done of kindness, I am eager to be kind. When a weaker brother stumbles and a strong man stands behind, just to see if it can help him, the wish grows in me greater and greater. To become, to become as big as a thought and to be a friend of others. All travelers can witness that the best guides of today is not the one who tells them, but the one who shows the way. One good teacher may reach many, but many must behold. One deed of kindness noted is more than 40 that are told. He who stands with men in honor learns to hold his honor dear, for right living speaks a language which everyone knows is clear. Though an able speaker charms with many eloquence in the day that they speak, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. What he was trying to capture is God has called us to not simply hear the word, but God has also called us to apply the things that we are living. I love the second chapter of Acts because specifically, you not only get to see or hear a sermon, but you get to see the impact the sermon makes on people's life. I want to encourage you this week to read the entire second chapter of Acts because when you see it and when you read it, you will hear a sermon that will move your soul. You will hear a sermon while Christ is exalted. You will hear uh, God's word preached clearly, boldly, and passionately. But then, beginning in around verse 36, you will begin to see how the sermon takes up root in people's lives and how the people actually apply the sermon to their lives. On last week, we spoke from uh, the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, and we essentially were reminded of the priority of preaching. When we preach God's word, what we are doing here this morning is we want to expose you to the truth of God's word for the purpose of tra transformation. A preacher said this way, if, if the text has a cold, we hope you leave the sermon coughing. Say it another way. If the, if the text has some bad cologne, we hope you leave here stinking. The, the, the point is, we want to be so exposed, so impacted, so close to what God has said that it is impossible for you to leave here and not be impacted by that truth. When we consider what takes place during every sermon, we must also remember that we are not simply called to be hearers of the word, 
but God has called us to be doers as well. Uh, this past Sunday, we had our, our small group uh, Bible study, and one of the illustrations that I used Wednesday night is, is something I want to use today. Suppose I was, um, I suppose I was your father, and suppose I was, uh, I got up to go to work, and I woke you up on a Saturday morning. I said, son or daughter, uh, the expectation is that you cut the grass before I get home. If I'm clear in my explanation, you have no excuse but to do what I'm telling you to do because I am an authority figure in your life. Now, here's the truth. If you were to say to me, or if you were to spend your whole day praying about cutting the grass, <laughs> if you were to spend your whole day singing about cutting the grass, if you were to spend your whole day calling your friends together discussing the best options of grass cutting, when I got home, I would not be impressed. When, when I got home, I would not be satisfied. When I got home, I would be, I would be upset because I wasn't simply expecting you to sing about it and pray about it and, and preach about it. I'm expecting you to do exactly what was asked of you. I do think we need to press pause and understand that when we, when we approach God's word, there is an expectation of application. I want to be very clear this morning. We are not preaching performance. We're not preaching perfection. We are not preaching uh, that if you don't do what God's called you to do, that God no longer loves you. I'm not saying that if you were my child and I were to get home and you didn't cut the grass, that does not mean that you are no longer my son or my daughter. That does not mean that you are no longer uh, in my favor. That does not mean that I'm going to kick you out of my house, but it does mean that I will be disappointed in your actions. When you look at the text, what's powerful in the text is that the people were not just entertained by the sermon. The people were just not uh, moved by the sermon. What's powerful is that the people applied the truth of the sermon together. I'm going to say it again. What's powerful is that they applied the truth of God's word in the context of community. Uh, they just didn't hear a good word. But the good word they heard brought them closer together, and that good word brought them closer to, cross, to Christ. I need, I need to say something this morning. Yes, our relationship with God is personal. There are no grandchildren of God. You must have a personal relationship with Christ for yourself. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot have a relationship with God based upon your grandma's faith or your mom's faith or your spouse's faith. You must have a personal relationship with God for yourself. Your relationship with God is personal. But here's the truth. Your relationship with God should never be private. Your relationship with God should never be something that's just between you and the Lord. When you look at the text, the church is, is the place that God has called us to express our faith and to live our, our faith together. The church is more than a theater for spiritual performances. It is more than organization for spiritual programs. The church is a living body. It is a living organism that we have been called to be a part of for the purpose of community. God has called us to be together because God desires for us to be a family. I think it's important for us to say that because so many times 
when we think about churches, when we think about uh, Christian community, it's about how well am I entertained, uh, how well am I informed, how well are my kids taken care of. But we got to understand that this is a context for a family, a people who were far apart to be called together. So when we read Acts 2, we not only hear a sermon in verses 1 through 36, we actually get to see the sermon lived out. First thing we see lived out is, as they heard the sermon, as they walked away from the passage, they accepted a new identity in Christ. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. God's word cut them deeply. It wasn't a cut to hurt them, it was a cut to heal them. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The passage is important because it sets the precedence for what we refer to as believer's baptism. A believer's baptism is reserved for those who have placed their faith and their trust in Christ. I want to say that again. We do not believe in baptizing everyone. We don't believe in baptizing babies. We believe that baptism is reserved for an individual who has placed their faith and their trust in Christ. I want to say something, I'm not fussing anybody today, but there, there are people among us who you got baptized when you were three or four years old, or maybe when you were a baby. And it's impossible for you to have a believer's baptism because you did not believe. In the text... Uh, believer's baptism is reserved for everyone who has professed faith in Christ. It is for believers who have uh, an opportunity to make a public profession that they belong to Christ. In the Great Commission, we need to understand that, that baptism is really an act of obedience. Matthew 28 verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we think about Matthew 18, this is uh, the last command that Christ gave before he ascended into heaven. We, we often say at our church that we want to make uh, Christ's last command our first priority. And a part of that priority is that we find our identity in Christ. That we, we are baptized because we are making a bold declaration that we belong to Jesus. After a person places their trust in Christ... They are expected to be baptized. I want to say this. Baptism does not save anyone. Uh, you can, I, I love how the old preacher said, he said that you can go in a, a dry center and leave out a wet center if you don't have Jesus. <laughs> Just because you have uh, an experience where you get wet does not mean that you have a relationship with Christ. But, but here's why baptism is important. It's, it's another sermon, Right? When we bring out the waters of baptism, we allow you to go in and we sit you down. We allow you to publicly profess your faith. And then I usually cover your mouth and I will lay you down flat as if you were in a coffin. Okay? And then we raise you up because it's a sermon that we have, that the old person has died and the new person is being raised again. It's a sermon because all of us 
will die one day. All of us uh, will die a death. But here's the truth. When we die in Christ, our death physically is not the end because God has promised us a resurrection after we die. Baptism is a big deal because it is an opportunity for every believer to say that my identity is not in my race, it's not in my gender, it's not in my job, it's not where I live, it's not in what I drive or where I work, it's not in how much education I have. My identity is not in my marital status or how many kids I have. My identity is found in Christ. My value is determined by God. My identity is in Christ because I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. So it does not matter what I do or don't do, where I live or I don't live. It doesn't matter how much education I've gotten. The scriptures uh, commend us that we must find our identity in Jesus and baptism gives us an opportunity to publicly declare that my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. So the first thing we see is that they accepted a new identity in Christ. Now secondly we see they embraced a new community. Verse 42 says And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the supreme. As we look at verse 42 closely, we need to ask the question, what does it really mean to be devoted? Like, what does it really mean for a person to be devoted to something or someone? Uh, To be devoted means to persist or to continue firmly in an opinion or a course in spite of difficulty or opposition or failure. I'm going to say this again. To be devoted means to persist or to continue firmly in an opinion or a course of action in spite of difficulty, in spite of opposition, in spite of failure. As I was reading uh, my notes and as I was uh, praying about the passage, it, it dawned on me that the passage is encouraging what I, can, what I consider a, a sanctified stubbornness. It made me feel good about myself because I have been stubborn a lot in my life. My wife would, 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 would agree that when I set my mind to something, there's no changing my mind. Now, when we're in the flesh, that's a bad thing, but, but when we're devoted to the things of the Lord, when we're devoted to Christ, when we're devoted to things that do not change in eternity, when we are devoted to what God has called us to be devoted to, that's a good thing. In the text, they were devoted to something, and the something was they were, of, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to doctrine. They were devoted to sound theology. They were devoted uh, to something that wasn't new. Uh, They weren't devoted to a fad. They were devoted to God's word and God's eternal truth. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings because the apostles' teaching was inspired by God. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching because it gave them something spiritually significant to, uh, to, to help them grow. Uh, I can remember uh, gr- growing up, we used to go to a place um, in Chattanooga. Uh, it was called uh, Lake Winnipesoka. It was 
I call it a, a poor man's um, Six Flags. It was, it was not very impressive. Um, it was, you know, one of those places where you go and half of the rides be broken down. And <laughs> as you get older, it's like, it's probably not, it probably wasn't that wise to, to ride on those rides, you know? But I can always remember uh, being at uh, Lake Winnipesaukee because at the end of our time there, my parents would always allow us to get some cotton candy on the way home. And, and the great thing about cotton candy, it, it, it tastes so sweet. But it's, the moment you, 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 you taste it, it melts away because it has nothing of value in it. A lot of us, we want a relationship with God that's like cotton candy. We want a, man, we want a cotton candy sermon. Man, we want something sweet. We want something that looks good. We want something that looks flavorful. But the truth of the matter is, cotton candy cannot help you grow. In the text, they, they focused on the apostles' doctrine. They had focused on the apostles' teaching because they were committed to having something that would help them grow spiritually. In the text, we have a, a precedent set that we are, to we are to be devoted to God's word. We are to be devoted to what God has called us to because here's the truth. If we are not devoted to what God has told us, we will not know how to live the Christian life. Yes, it is true that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, Christ came to reconcile us back to God. But here's another truth. Christ also came to show us how to live the Christian life. We know how to pray because the scriptures tell us how Jesus prayed. We know how to love our enemies because the scriptures tell us how Jesus loved his enemies. We know how to deal with hard times because the scriptures tell us how Jesus dealt with hard times. If you remove the scriptures from our life, then we do not know how to live the life that God has called us to. So in the text, we see that, that they had a community where Christ was the focus. They had a community that helped them go deeper into the teachings of Jesus. They had a community that was marked by a focus on Christ, a, a, a divine uh, mandate where they were focused on Jesus more so than they were focused on anything else. The question that we got to ask ourselves is, do we have that kind of community in our life? Do we have that kind of uh, environment to where there are people in my life who are helping me focus on Jesus. It's amazing that uh, all of us can, can, we have tons of options for social clubs. If you are in a sorority or fraternity, I'm not bashing. Sororities or fraternities, I'm not bashing social clubs. But here's the truth. If, if, my, if my key community is a community that does not honor Christ, that does not point me to Jesus, then I probably need to find another community to be a part of. When you look at the text, they had the apostles' teachings, but as we fast forward through the church age, now we not only have the apostles' teaching, but we have God's word written in scripture. If you have a Bible, I want you to go with me to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. Very familiar passage of scripture.
It's God's blessing to us. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It is given to us by God. All scripture is not man's words about God. The scriptures are God's word to man. And they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. When we we read 2 Timothy 3, it is a reminder that the scriptures are telling us that God's word is profitable for teaching. This past Wednesday, we went through this together, and we just concluded that the scriptures teach us and reveal to us what is right. That's why we need teaching. God teaches us what is right. God sets the standard as to what is right and what is wrong. But scripture also reproves us, meaning that scripture reveals what is not right. Teaching reveals what is right. Reproof reveals what is not right. Scripture also is profitable for correction because it reveals to us how to get right. It reveals to us how to change our lives and come up under the authority of God so we can live what is right. But scripture also is profitable because it is training in righteousness, meaning it helps us stay right. It helps us live a life that is right in God's eyes and God's standards. So first thing we see is they accepted a new identity. Secondly, we see they established a new community. And then thirdly, they embraced a new level of generosity. Verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were willing to sell their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day, those who are being saved. Uh, There's a word here that we get for fellowship, and this word is kononia, okay? The word kononia essentially communicates a group of people who have something in common. When Acts uses the word fellowship, we must understand that what they had in common is what we have in common. What we have in common today is Christ, As I look around the room, there are different ages, different genders, uh, there are different socioeconomics, there's different level of education, there's people at different uh, levels and in different stages in their life, there are people from different countries, and there, there are people who speak different languages, but the thing that ties our hearts together is Christ. Christ is the connection that brought the early church together, but Christ is also the connection that brought this church together. Now, there's a big difference here, though, because when we think about fellowship, we usually uh, think about uh, the fellowship hall. We think about a potluck. We think about an area of the church where we usually eat, right? We think about uh, oneness of purpose. We think about things uh, that are not necessarily bad things, but when you think about the text, uh, in the text, 
Fellowship came through, through giving. Our fellowship came when people were willing to make a sacrifice. Fellowship happened when people in the body were as concerned about others as they were themselves. I'm going to say it again. Fellowship in the church happens when we are as concerned about our brothers and sisters as we are ourselves. When you read the text, it's very clear. It says they sold all they had and distributed so that no one was lacking. They gave so that everyone had what they needed. They gave so that everyone in the body was able to have what they needed to be successful in life. When you think about it, it's, p- passages like this are really, really tough because if I was on the other side, I would be thinking right now, what is this dude trying to say? Is he trying to say we need to sell everything we have? Like, is he trying to tell me I need to just give all my money away? I I knew that guy. I knew he was about to talk about money. I knew it. I knew it. If that's what you're thinking, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. What I am trying to communicate is, if we're going to be a family, we got to make sure that everybody in the family is taken care of. If we're going to be a family, if we're going to be a body, if we're going to be a real community, we've got to make sure that we are giving so that everyone has their needs taken care of. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. It's my favorite passage of scripture that speaks about giving in the body. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. Second Corinthians 8, 1 simply says... We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. When we read Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter number 9, uh, we find the word translated uh, grace about eight times in the text. Specifically in the eighth chapter, in verses 1 through 9, we have the word grace appearing about five times. Now, because we have uh, English Bibles and because the Bible was written in original Greek and translated, it's really easy for us to miss uh, the power behind the word grace. Uh, the, Greek wo- the Greek word or the Greek root word for grace is charis, meaning uh, God's unmerited favor. It is the perfect picture of salvation. When a person is saved, they receive God's unmerited favor, meaning that we are saved based upon God's grace We are saved not based upon what we do. We are saved because God wants to give us something that we do not deserve. It must be clearly noted that the word we translate grace in 2 Corinthians 8.1 isn't the word that simply speaks about God's unmerited favor. That's charis. But the word we have in 2 Corinthians 8.1 is the word that we translate charin. 
This word is not grace, meaning what God has given us. This is grace, meaning the activity that is a response to what God has already given us. The idea is that they were not just recipients of grace. The idea is that they got to a place in their life where they wanted to be the conduit of grace. They wanted to give grace. They wanted to be used by grace. They wanted to uh, live their life in such a way where other people were blessed. Like a lot of us uh, have, have prayed, Lord, bless me. But here in the text, we have people who are willing to pray, Lord, let me be a blessing to others. Kind of our philosophy of giving as a church, we've concluded that we want to be grace-based givers. That we don't want to give out of coercion, we don't want to give to get back, but we want to give in a response to what God has already given us. When you look at the Macedonian church, Paul says that they were an example of people who were poor. They were afflicted, yet they were still generous which lets us know that generosity is not simply for those who have an abundance. But in the text, those who were poor and those who were afflicted were still generous because they had an attitude to serve. They had an attitude that, Lord, I want to be a blessing to others because, God, you have been a blessing to me. So first, they gave not based upon their circumstances, but secondly, they gave not based upon coercion. Verse 3 says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief for the saints. I want to say something that I think is going to offend at least one person, but that's not my desire to offend you. Okay? This is the truth. In the text, they gave according to their means, but of their own accord. Their giving was not a result of Paul promising a, let me say it this way, their giving was not based upon Paul promising to deliver them from affliction. They didn't give based upon the promise that if they gave God some money, then God would go and fight their battles. Here's the truth. Does God fight our battles? Absolutely. I'm praying that the Lord fights my battles, but God does not fight for me based upon how much I give. Sometimes we can, we can approach God and, and excuse, the, excuse the, the illustration. I don't think we have any kids in here, but we can approach God like a stripper. When people go to a strip club, they throw money based upon a performance. And sometimes we can approach God that if, God, I throw you a little money, then you're going to perform for me. In the text, they did not give based upon getting something back. They did not give based upon coercion. They gave as God led them to give. They did not give as a result of God promising to make them rich. Uh, they did not give based upon the promise that if they sowed a seed, uh, they won't get a new car, a new house. They did not give based upon anything that way. They gave because they were led to give to be grace givers. So first, they were not, they were not giving based upon their conditions uh, they were not giving based upon coercion, but here's the truth. They were giving because of Christ. Verse 5 says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. I'm going to say it again. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. Say it again. 
they gave themselves first to the Lord. The root of generosity is first surrendering ourselves to God. See, it's not hard to, to give when we have surrendered. It's not hard to give when I understand that the Lord owns everything, that the Lord has blessed me with everything, and the Lord has given me something to be a good steward. The issue that, that giving causes us to consider is it's a stewardship issue. It's, it's God has entrusted you with something, and how are you using that? God has entrusted you with something important. How are you using the resources that God has given you? That takes the, the conversation to a totally different place. It's not about how much you give. It's about the heart behind your giving. It's not about uh, how much you have in your bank account. It's about how God is calling you to use the resources that he has given you to build his kingdom. There's really an implicit lesson here for us today. Number one, giving must begin with giving yourself to the Lord. Preachers, I, I said this a couple times, and, and I've had two preachers tell me don't say this anymore, but I'm going to say it. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, do not give anything to the church. Amen. It's true. Because sometimes we give to the church thinking that if I give to the church, then God owes me something. It's not the truth. If you're going to give, I want to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus first and then everything else will fall into place. On one of my favorite pastors, he asked a question. Anytime he gets to this issue, he says, we must wrestle with does God want something from you or, what, or does God want something for you? Say it again. You got to ask the question. Does God want something from you or does God want something for you? I really believe that God has something for you. I believe God has something for you because God wants you to live a life of generosity. Well, the resources that you have allow you to participate in the relief for the saints. Well, the resources you, that you have allow you to invest in kingdom purposes. The, the, the resources that you have keep you uh, from building uh, some kind of, of, of life that cannot follow you to the next life. So I think it's always important to go through this. So you may be sitting here, preacher, how, how should I approach my giving? What, how, what, what should I do with my giving? Here is my personal belief that God calls us all to give a certain way. Number one, God calls us to give to, to the Lord first. That's the tithe. God calls us to give um, a first fruit offering meaning that we give to the Lord first. Secondly, God has called you to take care of your bills. I'm sorry. First, we give to the Lord. Secondly, we give to our, our, what I call our, our inheritance for our kids. The Bible says a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So we're thinking about the legacy that we will leave behind when we're gone. So first, we give to the Lord. Secondly, we give to our savings, which is our legacy. Thirdly, we give to our bills. You've got to pay your bills. You've got to pay Georgia Power. You've got to pay Quicken Loans. You've got to pay Honda. Seriously, you've got to pay the gas company. You've got to pay your bills. Fourthly, we give to Mercy Ministry. Okay? Lashbrook, stand up. Go ahead. So the Lashbrooks are on staff with a ministry called Navigators. 
they raise support. They are missionaries to the campus of Georgia. So here's a practical way to do this. First, we give to the to local church. Then we give to our savings. Then we give to our bills. And then we give to people like them who are missionaries. We give to people like World Vision, who Michael works for. We give around the world. Y'all can be seated. We give to different things around the world because, here's the truth, we want our resources to be invested in kingdom purposes. Well, somebody said, well, 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 see, that sounds kind of hard. What about me? You're number five. (laughs) Number five is in there now. (laughs) Lastly, we give to leisure. Lastly, we give to you having a good time. Bob took his wife on a great excursion last night to Atlanta, spent a whole lot of money at a nice restaurant. That's great. (laughs) That's awesome. I want you to do that. Ty Fernando, they went painting last weekend. I love it. I want you to do things that are going to bless your family, but you got to do things in the proper order. So here's our, here's our takeaways for the sermon today. And Ben, could I get y'all to come on back up? As we consider the truth of God's word, and I would love to do good, good father again. As we consider the truth of God's word, number one, we've got to accept the identity that we have in Christ. The world is constantly trying to give you a different identity. And uh, some, of the, some of the things that the world tries to give you are not necessarily bad things. The world wants me to find my identity in being a pastor or being a chaplain of Georgia or who I'm married to or how many kids I have. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. All those things are gifts from the Lord, but here's the truth. It's easy for me to allow the gift to take priority over the giver of the gift. And when I think about my life, I want my identity to be in Christ first. Secondly, I want to encourage you to pursue a biblical community. No matter what church you attend, and I want to say this very boldly, I hope that while you're in Athens, this is a great church home for you. I hope you grow here. I hope we uh, welcome you in. But you need to be a part of a community that helps you pursue Christ. Some of you guys are students, and you're only passing through Athens for a short amount of time. No matter where you go, you need to be in a community where people are going to love you well, but who are going to speak the truth in love and help you focus on Christ. Thirdly, we need to embrace biblical gospel generosity. We need to first give ourselves to the Lord, but after we give ourselves to the Lord, we need to give our resources to kingdom purposes. I think Aaron has asked some folks to come forward today. So if you've been asked to help um, this morning, I want you to come up, prayer team. I want to get everyone um, to stand with me this morning.